Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for this time to be here and to open your word. We ask, Father, that you would be pleased now to open our hearts, to renew our minds with your word. Aid your servant that the words he speaks would be nothing more and nothing less than your very words. We ask this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, to summarize what we've done in previous couple of months in chapters 1 and 2 and thus far in chapter 3, we see Timothy, the young minister, Paul writing to him sometime in the mid-60s, A.D. 65-ish. And uh, he begins with a warning against false teachers. How important it is that the church stand guard and be aware of the truth so that they can recognize the errors that will come their way. Because they will. It's not a matter of if they do. The scriptures are clear. Errors will come our way. Errors may even rise up within the church body that have to be dealt with. Paul warned the elders of this church back in Acts chapter 20 of that very thing. That we not only have to do battle with those outside who would speak uh, untruth, speak lies, errant doctrine, but we have to be aware that those, those falsehoods out there may seep in and may rise up within our midst. And we have to be there to take issue with those and to bring us back to the truth. It's not imperative that we know all the false things that are being taught. I was reminded of this many years ago. I've told this. Some of you will remember a dear lady, 85 years old. I don't know if she was always a terrible driver, but she was at 85. I made the mistake of riding with her one night, and God was merciful. And she rode with me from then on to go visit people. She was a matron saint of the community, grown up there and uh, successful. And, and she said this after hearing me teach a little series on some of the prominent cults, particularly the ones that were common in their community to come in and try to proselytize. And at the conclusion of that, she said, you know what, you know what I've learned from this? What, Miss Rubel? If we know what we believe, if we know what the Bible says, we'll be ready when they come. We don't have to know everything they believe. And that's right. If we know what we believe, what the Bible teaches, and that's one of the beauties of the catechisms, isn't it? Whether it's the children's, the shorter, and certainly the larger, becoming so familiar with those truths that when we hear something, our ears are tuned, having the truth to recognize the mistake so that we can then address it with the truths of God's Word. And that's what Paul's doing here, writing to Timothy, the young pastor. Uh, Then he moves into the corporate context of, okay, we have these false teachers. They rise up in our midst sometimes. You need to be aware of this. And by the way, keep in mind... Who's supposed to be the leaders of the church? The men are. Here's women. He addresses the women. Here's your role. 
And we looked at those in detail, looked at some of the harder issues there in chapter 2. If you missed any of those, please, please uh, take them up and listen to them on your own time. Then he moves directly into, okay, if men are to be the leaders in the church, then how do we know who the leaders of the church should be? What do they look like? Who are they? And here's who they are. Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3 deal with the elder. And this is, this is what an elder will be. Not what he may become, but what he will be in order for you to recognize him. And so choose him so that he can serve you as a spiritual leader of the church. If he doesn't meet these qualifications in the present tense, then he's not qualified. Same with the deacons, and we considered that last, even, last Sunday evening. And now he, he, he comes to the close of this instruction on the corporate nature of the church, and he reminds them that the corporate nature of the church, the corporate behavior, the decorum of the church is all important because of the message that we have. If the church is not ordered properly and doesn't live properly, then it doesn't matter what we say. People aren't going to listen. You know that in your own personal life. If you, if you live an dis, undisciplined life, and yet you try to speak discipline into someone else's life, what's the response? Who are you? Yeah, that's pot calling the kettle black, isn't it? Years ago, a friend who worked for a large corporation, he was the national or the, an international director and he was over part of Europe and he lived in Europe and occasionally he'd be back home and I was talking to him once and I said, so what's the, what's the biggest challenge living in Portugal? And you know what he said? He didn't say, you know, the food. He didn't say the language. He didn't say any of those things you might think of. He said, being being a Christian from America. I said, what? He said, here's what they say when I try to talk to them about Jesus Christ and about the gospel. They say, hey, listen, you go back and when, you're, when your people, when it looks like this has made a difference to your people, then come back, we'll listen to you. But they were watching our television. They were watching our movies And they knew we were a decadent, undisciplined, godless society. And they figured if it hadn't made a difference here, it didn't matter to them. That's why it's important for the church to be properly ordered and properly disciplined. To do things, as Paul says to the Corinthians, in a decent, orderly fashion. And that's what this this book is largely about. Three things I want us to see from the immediate text... And the first you see there in the thesis uh, being the maintenance and distribution of the truth resides in the church. And that's a rightly ordered church. The first point is the truth is of the utmost most importance. We live in an age where truth is, is considered to be relative, subjective, your opinion instead of absolute. Now there's always been 
people who have approached truth that way. In the event with Christ, in that, in that, in that fateful night, when Jesus spoke to Pilate concerning truth, and he said, what is truth? What? What are you talking about? So there's always been that, but we live in an age that has been particularly groomed to doubt truth, to question authority. So it's important for us to be mindful that the truth is of the utmost importance. And notice how Paul says this here. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you purpose so that if I delay, you may know. In other words, this couldn't wait. This is the way Calvin says it. He could not endure to delay for a short time a remedy for a present evil. Paul didn't think it could wait for him to tell them these things. Some of you all have lived this out where you've put off doing something until it was too late. And you regret it. And Paul didn't want that regret. He didn't want to arrive a month, three months, six months, a year later in Ephesus and find it was too late. That the troublers, the false teachers, those who would disrupt the church, men would be put into office as elders and deacons who weren't qualified. He didn't want to find that in a year and it be too late. The church be in chaos. And adrift. And so he wrote, Delay in establishing the church in truth was not an option for Paul. Order in the church cannot be taken lightly. Notice what he says. He wanted them to know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And that's what we've been seeing through the whole book, isn't it? How we're to behave. How we're to be ordered. Who's supposed to be the, the leaders, the spiritual leaders in the church, who's not to be? What the qualifications are for elders, what the qualifications are for deacons. How the church is to be ordered. It's not an, a matter of indifference. There are actually people, people I consider to be Christians, who would hear me this morning and say, you're out of your mind. I just cannot believe it matters to God how we order his house or how we behave in his house. There are people who hold that view. And if you don't believe it, when you're on vacation sometime, go and you'll see that they practice that which they preach. And the things that go on would astound you because they certainly are not decent and orderly. Paul said this is urgent. Second point, the truth about the church is of the utmost importance. Not only is the truth of the utmost importance, but the truth about the church is the utmost importance. How you're to behave in the household of God. Now, just look at a couple of implications here of that phrase, household of God. We confessed our faith together just a few moments ago. And we confessed that the church is made up of true believers, those who profess the faith, and their children, 
and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God. So when Paul here says the household of God, there's a few implications there that we need to not just gloss over. And we shouldn't just assume everyone would think of. The first thing that comes to my mind when I read household in the context of the church and God the Father is our adoption. Who gets to belong in the household? Professing believers and their children. And that's by way of adoption. Yes, the Father calls us The Spirit regenerates our hearts, our souls, gives us faith and repentance that we might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father then declares us, based on our union with Christ, not guilty. Your sins have been covered. They've been taken away. They've been cast as far as the east is from the west. They've been placed behind God's back. They've been put at the depths of the ocean. All that imagery the Scriptures use. That's good news. But there's more good news. He not only justifies us, deals with our sin problem, but he adopts us. He deals with our orphan problem, our abandonment problem. Satan, Satan has abandoned us. This world will abandon you. Your best friends sometimes. It's amazing isn't it? Some of you are sitting here when I said best friend, you're thinking, yeah, my best friend from then, I have not heard from in 40 years. And I thought we were like this. She even wrote in my yearbook, you know, never leave you or forsake you. I'm your friend forever. He wrote that. Best bud in football, best bud in life. Forever. You know, forever is a big word at that age, isn't it? And yet you've not heard. But here you've got the difference. The Father in heaven adopts us, makes us part of the household, part of the family of God. So that's one of the implications of this passage. Reminding us who we are in Christ. We have a home. Another implication you see there is is that not only are we adopted, but... We live in the presence of God and His people. See, these are all your brothers and sisters up there and down here. Some who aren't here today. Brothers and sisters. Some of you may have the, the case like a number of folks I know who have biological, physical brothers and sisters... And just don't have much in common with them. But you find your commonality. You find your common ground. You find those people you love to be with. That you love to do things with. They're right here. It's a household. It's a family. We're adopted as sons. Notice not only the implications, notice the cosmic nature of the household of God. Do you see what it said there? The household of God, which is the church of the living God. It's God's church. 
we, we're so time warped, so time bound. It's hard for us to think that a God who is eternal, who as the scriptures say, sits on the circle of it all, could be our Father and with us. And yet he's promised that when two or more are gathered, there he is in the midst of them. You say, I don't see him. Children, what does the catechism say? Who is God? God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like you and I. The Lord Jesus Christ promised not to leave us as orphans in John 14, but that he would send us one just like himself, the spirit of truth who would be with us. So the spirit of God is here with us now. We're engaged in, in a cosmic relationship and we're, we're people of cosmic ramifications, if you will. The message we preach is one of eternity. Yes, it has temporal benefits. <clears throat> the gospel, the good news, does have temporal benefits. <clears throat> but it's largely a, a good news about forever. And we can count on God when it comes to forever because He is forever. From everlasting to everlasting. And He doesn't change. Notice the temporal necessity of the household of God. It's a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, you may be reading other translations, and I think almost all other translations than the ESV translates this, the pillar and buttress, or the pillar and foundation, or the pillar and... Uh, and, and so, it is, and, and I'm, I'm not real pleased with the ESV translation at that point. It, it kind of suggests it's one of others, but it, the fact is that it's, it is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The imagery there is, is, is remarkable, isn't it? A pillar. Some of you all have been to old locations, historic sites, even here in the U.S., but particularly if you go to the U.K. and into Europe, if you go into South America, some of those ancient areas, and you go out and they'll show you the ruins of some something. You know, whether it's a church, whether it's a, 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 a famous building of some type, and sometimes a, you see a bunch of rocks scattered around or brick, and, and about the only thing that, that's remaining are the pillars. And you see these columns ascending, you know? And the foundation, you see the foundation, you can kind of trace it out. So the image there is the, the pillar, the buttress, the foundation. The, the buttress, or the pillar rather, pictures those columns that undergird the roof of a building. And without the columns, the roof crashes in, the inhabitants are, are injured, confusion ensues, trampling of people. 
then the foundation. And if the foundation's sound, then the building. You don't go out and if you, you find somebody says, you know, this is a wonderful home, beautiful architecture, got this, this, all the things you need. Just one problem, but that's just one, you know. Nobody's going to turn a house down for one problem. You've got a foundation problem. And nobody signs the bottom line on that one. If there's a foundation problem, that's got to be remedied if it's possible, right? The church is the foundation and it's the columns. It's everything necessary to hold up what? The word of God. The pillar and buttress of the truth. The oracles of God have been deposited with the church. And when the church stands as she should, she holds it up. She sets it forth so that the world can know what the truth is. That's why Paul's telling Timothy all this about properly ordering the church is so that the truth can go forth properly and soundly. And it'll have effect. It's the church that declares the gospel. And we do that, we're called to do that without mixture of any sorts. And notice then, once he's established this, that truth is important, it's urgent, the truth about the church, getting the church right, what the church looks like, how it's structured, who the leaders are, all those things being important, necessary. Once he said that, then he says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. In other words, he's moved now to, what's our bait, what's our message What's the church about? Are we just supposed to sit here and say, we've got the right officers, we've got the right theology, we've got the right... And that's where we stop? No. Great, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. In other words, the church has a purpose to confess. We're a spiritual organism, we're a spiritual organization, and we're a spiritual agency. Our work is, Jesus told us, to make disciples. It's not to politic. It's not to cure all social ills. It's not to draft legislature. It's to preach the gospel. Now, let me say something. When the gospel is consumed, when the gospel becomes ours, we will be people who make a difference out there as individuals in the political arena and in in relation to social issues. We'll speak to those issues. But you have to get the foundation right, and that's what the church is about. It's getting the foundation right, getting the message right so that we can then have something to say to address all these issues as individuals. And here's how he summarizes the truth that we're to confess. And I've, 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 I've coupled these because in studying these, uh, become convinced and, and 
and scholars vary on this some, but I think the, the best way to see these is uh, offerings of couplets. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit belonging together, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This was used, we're not sure how it was used in the early church. In most of your Bibles it's set apart like it's a poem or something to be distinguished. Uh, some, some evidence that it may have been an early confessional item that churches used to confess their faith. Uh, others are convinced it was probably a, a part of a hymn in the early church. Uh, my wife asked, why couldn't it be both? And the answer is... No reason it couldn't have been a, a confession of the church that they sung, or they sang rather. And so, the, the, the fact is we don't know how they used it exactly, but we know they believed it and they confessed it because Paul says for them to here. And the first thing we see is that the truth of the incarnation you can't compromise on that. You have to maintain that. He was manifested in the flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ. John picks up on this in the letter to the church in his first epistle when he says this very thing. In the gospel according to John, chapter 1 is largely about this, that he came and tabernacled with us. He took on flesh and tabernacled with us. The gospel accounts all deal with the incarnation, the coming of the Lord Jesus. And we cannot compromise on that or we give away the gospel. There is no gospel without this supernatural incarnation that the eternal Son of God came and took on flesh. And by the way, Paul says, this is not a matter of personal opinion or a person's theology. This truth was vindicated by the Spirit. Now we could go to a number of places and look at that. But you think of the baptism episode. When the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized at the hand of John the baptizer. And the Spirit of God descended upon him. And accompanying the descent of the Spirit was the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The vindication of the Spirit. The incarnation is not a, not a theology. There are those who, who in the 19th century who struggled greatly with the supernatural came up with the idea that, oh, we know what, how this happened. Uh, how this happened was that these apostles, these disciples became so enamored with this man, this man who did such great things, that when he died, they just they came up with these ideas of these ways of, of memorializing him and honoring him. And one of the things was because they lived in a Greek culture, they, they deified him. And the way they did that was by t coming up with this, this incarnation theory. And it's all that's important is that you just do what he did. Live after his example. But the scriptures say otherwise. He was manifested in the flesh 
and that was justified or vindicated by the Spirit of God. So the incarnation is part of the truth that we confess. Notice, then it says that he was proclaimed among the nations, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. So this truth that we have has to be proclaimed. When they tried to silence Peter and the other apostles in the book of Acts, you remember what Peter said? We cannot but speak of all the things we've seen and heard. We have to say this. It's in us and it has to come out. There's no exceptions. Notice the contrast they Uh, the writer uses here, the Apostle Paul uses here, uh, the angels saw all this. And I was just just thinking back. uh, Remember that the angels attended the Lord of hosts in the Old Testament when when the the, uh, pre-incarnate Christ would come into the midst of people. In the case of Joshua and other places, there were always the angels attending. Angels announced the coming of the Lord. Remember? Both Joseph to Mary. Angels attended his birth. They saw it. The angels ministered to the Lord in the wilderness during the 40 days. Remember? There they were, seeing his great battle with Satan. The probation that Adam failed back in Genesis, Christ successfully met in the wilderness with Satan and there the angels saw it. Remember the angels stood ready in Gethsemane to defend our Lord against the evil one. And all he had to do was call for them. They attended his resurrection, remember? When the women went to the tomb, there were those in white the angels, they had seen it. And we turn to the book of Revelation and the angels are there watching all that we do, attending to the worship of our great God. So that which was seen by the angels, but listen, the angels aren't proclaiming. They just saw it all. We have the high privilege of proclaiming the incarnation and all that he accomplished in the flesh for us. We have the privilege of proclaiming that. And we're to proclaim it to the nations. We can become so parochial. And we just, we just do what comes across our path. Because that's the easiest. But as Samuel Ward said in one of his sermons, we shouldn't do the easiest and cheapest work. We should do the hard work. And children particularly, I want to say to you, I hope you grow up, I hope your parents are teaching you to do the hard things. Not just the convenient things. Not just the easy problems 
Not just the easy professors in college, but do the ones that will push you to do the best. And we as Christians should live that way. So, what's part of what we're confessing? The incarnation and all that involves. Everything he did in the, in the flesh. We proclaim that which has been seen by the angels. And then notice the, the, the last couplet. Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Again, the contrast. You notice all the way through this, this temporal cosmic contrast. In the flesh, by the spirit, by angels among the nations. In the world, in glory. So this thing that's going on called the church and this message we proclaim called the gospel is not a little earth thing. Sometimes we're very reductionistic, aren't we? What's going on here is something eternal because we worship an eternal God whose eternal son came and took flesh and whose spirit is with us always. And so we confess that which we've learned in the scriptures, the truth that the church has held up throughout the generations. So we hold the mystery of godliness in our heart, and we profess the mystery of godliness in our works and our words. The church really is not only the foundation of the truth, but there's a sense, folks, in which we're the foundation of the world. A nation will only be as great as the church. Now, there's not a direct cause and effect there, I realize. But how can we expect much of the world when we accept so little from the church? When the church is anemic, everything around her will be affected by that. And this is a great challenge to us, not only to rightly order the church and have the right godly men in place to lead the church, and not only to speak the truth that the church protects and guards and proclaims, but to live in a manner consistent. And that's by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. No hope otherwise. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. As we consider those three imperatives. That the truth is the utmost importance. The truth about the church is vitally important and and that wonderful gospel that's entrusted to us to proclaim. We ask, Father, that you would enliven us with this truth in Jesus' name. Amen.